If you got this morning and uh, turned on your uh, web browser and checked the news or got the paper from the side of the road or whatever, uh, no doubt probably what you saw is the number one story uh, in our land anyway is the Razorbacks finally won, all right? Yeah. Whether you're a Razorback fan or not, you got to at least have a little bit of mercy inside of you. Uh, it was embarrassing there for a while. And maybe the curse of Petrino has been broken, and uh, we are now going to see uh, a new and revived uh, uh, pride in the Wupig Sui out there. But probably number two on, on, the, uh, on, the, on the web feed for you might, might have been really a more tra- tragic bit of news. It wasn't a thousand people storming the field and acting like we've never been here before, but it was, um, it was 5,000 people now and counting have been killed from Ebola, and have, their life have been taken from them, and how sad that is and the reality of that, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm still blown away when I think about that. Africa is very near our hearts, as you know that, and uh, I still don't know what to do and how, how to respond to it. Uh, I, I want to do something, but I know that I can't really offer anything medically to that, and so what can I bring to the table? Uh, I, I praise and thank those doctors and nurses who go over and uh, use their expertise to help people uh, and save lives as, as best they can, and I just appreciate that. But what I can do is I can pray, and I, I know that's a, that's a real easy lob out there for a lot of people because some people just don't go, and they're not going to go, and they don't want to go, and they say, Mike, you're a goer, and I'm a, I'm a stayer. And you may be a stayer, but you can certainly be a prayer at at the same time. And if you're going to stay, then you need to be praying. It needs to be a part of us because it's not just our economy out here. It's not just our thoughts. This is God's plan for the nations. All right. It's not just a little old American. We've been kind of on the defensive. I know Uh, we don't want it in our borders. We want it all out there. But really, we need to embrace the world as God embraces the world. We need to think about the world as he does. And how can we be a part of the solution? And I really do believe in prayer. I think it's it's one of those elements in once it crossed into, it was already, when it was in Sierra Leone, Guinea, and and um, in Liberia, it was already kind of close to home and close to my heart because it's in Africa. But it was, when it crossed over into Mali, and there are four confirmed cases in the Mali, and that's really big for our, na- for our church because we have been about Mali. We have been in Mali. We've sent 181 people from our church to Mali. We've got somebody on the ground right now living in the Bamako, in the capital city, Eric Madden, who's teaching ESL as a second, la- English as a second language to young professionals and looking for doors of opportunity. We've had Aubrey Barton, who's probably in this room right now, who's uh, served over there for three months. We've had Sarah Williams, who's served over there. We've had so many of our people who've gone over and spent extended time. We have spent and invested, let me say it like that, we've invested over half a million dollars in Mali. Now, if you care anything about investments, if, you're, if that registers with you, then that alone should say, hey, this is important and we need to play, play some priority on it. So what we're doing, and this was not organized by us, we're just getting on the bandwagon, is on Wednesday, they're calling for a day of prayer and fasting. And so we on Wednesday, I'm going to call all of us for a day a prayer and fasting. I don't know what you're talking about fasting. I don't fast from anything except from dinner at night to breakfast in the morning. That's about the only time I fast. Well, let's challenge it. Let's, let's raise the bar and let's look at this. What does prayer look like? How can we pray for the nations? And so at 6 a.m., that is correct, a.m. Uh, to 7 a.m., we're just going to have an open prayer time out in our gallery area, out in the prayer area. I'll be here. I may be the only one here, but I'll be here and, uh, and we'll be praying. And I'll have a prayer guide. We'll 
give that to you because we want to pray that God would break through this virus and that there would be healing in nations and that we would be able to go back in that we're not able to go into right now just because of, uh, of cautionary reasons. And so would you pray with me in this? Would you, would you come at 6 a.m. Or you, or you don't? Would you commit Wednesday to being a day of prayer and fasting for for the, the, the nations that are suffering from Ebola. So just think about that. And, and if 6 a.m. doesn't work for you because you're already at work, we're going to pray for you, okay? Because if you work at 6 a.m., then you need prayer. Uh, otherwise, just get up early. Come for 15 minutes. Come for whatever. It's just going to be an open hour. Come and go as you please. And, and we'll have some structure, a time for you to kind of lead your own prayer time. But that'll be on Wednesday morning. And to be thinking about that. Prayer is one of those things that Jesus did so effectively and so well. Out of all the things that Jesus did, do you realize the only thing that Jesus' disciples asked him to teach him was how to pray? Jesus walked on water. Jesus brought dead people back to life again. He multiplied fish. Think about the marketing opportunities that they had to make more money. If they would, if, if they would just, Jesus, would you just teach us how to catch fish like you? You know, that, that alone would have been a, a great revenue, source of revenue for them. But none of that is what they asked for. Jesus, would you help us to teach like you, preach like you? No, they said, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? Prayer is one of those things that we need to get better at. And here's an opportunity for us. Teaching and learning is a part of the Christian faith throughout your Christian walk with God. However weak or bulimic or strong or vibrant it may be, we are constantly learning from those who have gone before us. Jesus, but Paul did you know, most of the teaching in the New Testament. He wrote most of the books in the New Testament. And one of the things he told young Timothy, he even gave him a core curriculum. And that core curriculum was to teach people how to be rich. Now, let me hang on, hang on to that for a moment because I want us to realize something in this room today that everyone in this room is rich, all right? Now, we, we established that the last Sunday in September. If you missed that message, you need to go back and listen to it because I'm going to tell you that you are rich, all right? In fact, I even sent you to a website, globalrichlist.com, all right? You can go there and you can plug in your salary and you can find out where you are in the global rankings of your income, all right? And I even gave you the example of $15,000, which is poverty level for America today uh, for a couple living together. But if you are $15,000 annual income, you are in the top 8% in the world's uh, richest people in the world. So just put yourself in the rich category, okay? And, and whether or not you see yourself there or not, you need to see yourself as being rich. Now, where's all that going? Because when you come to the scriptures, one of the things that Paul did was Paul told young Timothy, you need to teach people how to be rich, not to become rich. This is not a get rich scheme, but how to live rich, how to handle the finances, how to manage the wealth that God gives you. In fact, you can read it with me in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. He says, teach those who are rich in this world. And again, you may not see yourself as rich. In fact, how many of y'all did that exercise about three or four weeks ago? You went to Global Rich List and you looked up where you were. Raise your hand. All right, about 10% of you. All right, that's, that's, that's the extent of how much you do what I ask you to do. Okay, now that's, that's what I know. All right, now I'm telling you to do it. Turn me off and go to your website and find out how rich you are right now. All right, do your phones and you can do that. But I'm going to keep talking and so you can catch a little bit as we go. But the reality is, is that Paul told Timothy, 
Timothy, you're a pastor, you're a young pastor, you got to tell people, you got to teach people, you got to train people on how to be rich. Not how to become rich, but how to be rich. And he gives us, in this, in, in this, in this talk, he talks about, he said, they would not be proud, they would not trust in their money, they would not, it's, it's unreliable that they would trust in God and, and that they would, who would richly gives all we need for our enjoyment. So he says a lot of things right there. So if you just take that down and you just break it down into axioms, these are three axioms, if you will, about what it means for you and I to be rich and how are we to be rich. And you just need to jot these down real quick. Number one, beware of the status of stuff. Now, I'm just going to take money and possessions and I'm just going to run them together and I'm just going to call it what it is. And that's really uh, what we're talking about today as one of the idols of our life and can be the idols of our life and stuff. All right. That's money. That's possessions. That's whatever. But beware. Beware of the status. Notice what he said. He said, don't be proud. Don't be arrogant. Don't be boastful. But yet so much of the time, the labels that we wear the things that the neighborhoods we live in, subdivisions we live in, the cars that we drive, whether they're foreign or domestic, whether they're old or new, whatever that is, all of that is status. All of that is a, a place in society. All of that helps rank us in the society in which we live. So let us not become proud of the stuff, arrogant with the stuff. Don't get caught up in the status of stuff. Number two, he says, don't trust your stuff. All right, don't trust your stuff. He says it multiple times. He says uh, not to trust, it's unreliable, but really what we should do is we should trust in God. So if we're not going to trust our stuff, who should we trust? We should trust God. And the reality is, is that all of your life, all my life, all of creation's life, stuff and God have been fighting for each other. They've been fighting for first place. In fact, there's a lot of similarities between money and stuff, between stuff, excuse me, between stuff and God. There's a lot of similarities. We get security based on our 401k, don't we? We get security based on our, our bank account. We should get security from God. We, we've, we find, again, we find a sense of warmth, of comfort from money, much like we should find from God. There are so many things. We even feel guilty about money, and sometimes God makes us feel guilty. We find freedom from money, and we also find freedom from God. There's power in money. There's also power in God. You see the similarities? And so for all of your life, all my life, all of our existence, listen, 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 listen. there's going to be a battle. And the battle is going to be over what you're going to trust more. Are you going to trust the stuff or are you going to trust God? Are you going to trust your income, your 401k, or are you going to trust the Lord Almighty? Are you going to trust Jesus Christ? Are you going to put your faith in him? Where is your trust going to lie? And sometimes it's a lot easier to trust something you can hold and smell and, and things like that. And you can't hold and smell God. So sometimes we're, we're caught up in this. Warren Wiersbe said it well. He said, the material blessings of life are either a mirror in which we see ourselves or a window through which we see God. When it's a mirror in which we see ourselves, we look at money, we look at self, we see them as one, we see that, that our security is wrapped up in that, and it's all tied together. But whenever we see, when we use the material blessings and we are able to see through them as a window, seeing into the heart of God, seeing into God's provision, seeing into what God has done for us, that's when money is in its proper place. Third axiom is enjoy the stuff that God gives you. 
Now, you might think in just the, the, the outset of this message that, that God doesn't want you to enjoy anything. He's a cosmic killjoy out there. You need to give it all away. You need to live as a pauper, all that kind of stuff. That's not it at all. In fact, everything you have, God gave you to enjoy. So enjoy it. If you've got two cars, enjoy two cars. If you've got two homes, you, go, you get to go on expensive vacations, enjoy them. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. It can become wrong. It can become wrong because there's a very thin line between enjoying what we have. He said, gives all we need for our enjoyment. Everything that we have has been given for our enjoyment. But what happens, though, is there's a very thin line. It's a very dangerous line between stuff that we enjoy and stuff becoming God. Stuff, we're enjoying it. Stuff, it becomes something that we worship something that we trust, something we find security in, something we find comfort in. At that point, we have made money, stuff, things, possessions. We have made them idols. Foreign missionary president, foreign mission board president in the 1950s was a guy named James Cawthon. He made, a, he made a great statement to missionaries as they would sell out and go around the world and they would box up what, a few things they could take around the world. And he would say this to them. He said, wherever you take, you can take whatever you want. He says, but be sure you take it in your hand and not in your heart. And how things attach themselves to us and grow into us and become a part of us, we sometimes let things, possessions, stuff, money become a part of our heart and we don't hold them loosely in our hands. And when that happens, it doesn't happen overnight. It happens over a progression. It happens because we were trained that way. We haven't been trained this other way as, Timothy is, as Paul is telling Timothy. We haven't been taught this way. The world teaches us this way. And all of a sudden, we have this God problem. God of the universe warring with God called stuff. And who's going to win and who's going to be on top? And it's a battle in our life, and we try to synchronize it, and we try to make it okay. In reality, we fight these battles. These, these are called the idols, and these are the idols that we've been picking apart for the past couple of weeks. These idols are money and possession, sex and pleasure, power and pride. Each one of these can get a hold in our life and take control of our life. Stuff is like drugs. It is. You get a hit one day, and you need another hit that's even stronger the next day. There's never quite enough hits to satisfy. Listen to Rich King Solomon. We heard from Paul. Paul was a middle-class guy. We'll call him that. We'll call Rich King Solomon the richest king ever to rule Israel. I can't go into establishing how much wealth he had, but there are people who have studied his wealth in Scripture and have established it. It would be astronomical. It would make Bill Gates and the likes uh, look like paupers compared to what, what access uh, he had, Solomon had in his day. But he, this is what Solomon said in the memoirs of his life, in the very last writings of his life. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this, If you love money, you will never be satisfied. If you long to be rich, you will never get all you want. That's the reality is that it's just, it's like a mirage. It's like you can't quite get there. It's like that, that job didn't get it and that home didn't make it and that car didn't, it failed me and broke down. Or, and it's just like a mirage and you just can't ever quite get enough of it. Even the richest man that's ever lived says that there's never enough money. G.K. Chesterton. A, a middle uh, 19th, uh, 20th century, kind of lived in both centuries, uh, uh, man who grew up in a Catholic faith. Some believe he was an atheist, in, in, even in his Catholicism, and struggled with the faith 
got to faith in Christ through reason and worked it all out. And as he sorted this out, he was the prince of paradox. He made this statement. There are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more. The other is to desire less. To lower the bar. But we don't do that in our culture. We raise the bar. We raise the desires. We want more. That's what I'm saying in this series of messages. We've got to keep our desires in check. We can't let our desires run us because when our desires run us, they will mess us up. They'll create idols in our life. They'll choke out God's word and we will miss it. So we've listened to middle class Paul. We've listened to, to wise king, rich Solomon. Let's listen to a poor man, a homeless man named Jesus. Take your Bibles and find uh, Luke chapter 12. Jesus was homeless because he, he says, I don't have a place to lay my own head. And we're seeing all socioeconomic settings here or the strata, and yet his influence was, was astounding. In this scene alone, in chapter 12 of Luke, we find him speaking to thousands of people in one setting. We find that in chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to skip down to verse 13, and we're going to kind of pick it up after Jesus has just been teaching on what it means to follow him. What does it mean to follow me? And how do you follow me? And what does it mean to the Holy Spirit to be in you? And what's the cause and effect of when the Holy Spirit is in you? It's a beautiful discourse. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of it all, there's this man that raises his hand, doesn't, doesn't wait for a break. He just blurts out. He says, I got to ask you, Jesus, something. And he asked him this question about his inheritance and what's rightfully his and, and how could he help him get it and how could he solve this family squabble. And, and he just jumps right into the middle of the scene. And so Jesus has to kind of get off course. It'd be like me sitting up here talking today and then all of a sudden, hey, let's talk about the Razorbacks. All right, somebody in this room would just do that. It's like, well, what are you talking about, dude? You know, and so Jesus kind of gets in his face a little bit and then he, and then he gets off track with him. And so let's pick it up in the story and let's begin reading in verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 13. He says, someone in the crowd, we don't know who he is, said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, we don't know the story. We don't know any of the backstory, but here's a brother and a brother and they're fighting over money. Now that never happens in your home and that's so unrealistic today that we never have people fight over inheritance. That was a joke, all right? It happens all the time. Attorneys get wealthy off of that, all right? But he said to him, man, who made me the judge or the arbiter of, over you? And he said to them, take care. Now, this is the thesis of the entire talk. Take care and be sure you guard against all covetedness. Now, covetedness is another word for greed, and greed is another word for covetedness. For one's Life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. And then Jesus launches into a story form, a parable, some call it. And this is what he said. And he, he taught to himself, or excuse me, in verse uh, 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man uh, produced plentiful. So he was already rich. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. All right, this man was already rich, but he had his crops coming in, and he didn't have a place to store his crops. 
That means that his crops, his bins, his silos were already stocked full. So what's he going to do? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down uh, my barns and I will build larger ones and I, I will uh, store all my grain and, and my goods and I will say to my soul, you have ample goods, ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But then God interrupts his thought processes. And God said, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose who's will they be? You're going to be God. I'm going I'm to take your life. It's just a natural part. And you're going to leave with a bank account full and the bins full and the pockets full. And you're going to leave it all behind. Who's it going to be? Who's it going to belong to? And by the way, verse 21 is really the cause and effect of it all. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In this passage... There are three warning signs that stuff may be an idol in your family. Stuff may be an idol in your life. Look at them with me carefully and quickly. One is stuff distracts us from God's voice. Jesus is teaching about following him. Jesus is teaching about the spirit of God. One of my favorite verses in all the book of Luke is Luke chapter 12, verse 12. When he talks about the Spirit of God will give you the words at the time you need to say, I have trained and taught so many people using that verse right there. I wish, I wish in all my heart that verse 13 would have been the continuation. What next? What else about the Spirit of God inside of me? What else would happen? But this fool interrupts the conversation. He blurts out, I got a family squabble and I need some help. The man is distracted and I get it. Jesus is talking about this, and we're thinking about this. Some of y'all in this room right now are distracted. You're thinking about all the things you got to do when you get home. You're thinking about this week's test. You're thinking about this week's to-do list. You're thinking about a business trip that you got to get on. And you got all these things, and you're just kind of darting in here real quickly. Going to kind of take download a little Jesus, and you're going to dart back out. And the world's going to kind of, kind of come back around you again, and you'll be the center of the universe again. And the reality is, is that's exactly how this man was. Jesus is t- teaching about this, but he's thinking about this. He's thinking about his inheritance. He's thinking about his family squabble. It wasn't even reconciled. Hey, would you help reconcile with my brother? It's I need, want this. I want my inheritance. And Jesus calls him out on it. And he points out to him. He says in verse... verse uh, Verse 14, look down there. And he told them, a par- excuse me, uh, verse, verse 14. And he said to this man, who made me the judge or the arbiter over you? I- I'm not going to get into your family squabbles. I'm not going to be a part of this. And see, this is what happens when money and possessions and things gets into the mix, gets into our hearts. It begins to get us off track. God will be talking about this, but we'll be thinking about that. It's exactly what I shared a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 4, verse 19, when he says, the desires for other things, for other stuff, for more money, come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Desires is this theme of this entire series. What does it do? It comes in because it is like a cancer that takes over. It comes in and it chokes out the word that we don't hear him talk when he's talking. We are no longer hearing what he's saying because we're thinking about our own stuff. Neurologists have studied the brain and they took a group of religious people 
faith-based people. They ran them through a series of tests watching the brain activity that goes on through an MRI. They showed them different pictures, stained glass windows, incense, religious imagery, people worshiping, raising their hands, singing. People clearly could know what it was. And in their brains, their brains began to work almost like there was a, there was a, 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 a part of the brain that was dedicated for this religious devotion and activity. It's that cotic uh, part of the brain that uh, it's called the cotic nucleus. And it's in that area of the brain where there's brain activity that happens whenever you worship. Then they took another group of people. They showed them another group of images. This time they showed them images of retail shopping, of clothes and products and brands, and the same area of the brain was active. It begins to make sense to me now why Jesus said in his word, you cannot serve both God and money. How in in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 You can't have both of them focused in on. You can't be focused in on money and be focused in on me. Focused in on stuff and focused in on me. It's the same part of the brain. You're going to only have one part of your brain that's going to be devoted to me. And whether or not it's going to be stuff or not, it's up to you. Are we going to be distracted, pulled away? Richard Foster was very clear when he said that there's going to have to be a conversion from money and to Jesus if we're going to be true Christ followers. Money and possessions may be an idol in your life. If you spend more time shopping online and in stores than spent time in prayerful reflection in his word. I did challenge you this week. I challenge you to look at this past week. How much time did you spend online shopping, in retail stores, at Walmart, all right, I'm not saying you can't do that and you shouldn't do that. Just, just how much time? Just t- try to record it in minutes. And then how much time? Here's an activity. Throw it up there. It says, and then I want you to record, estimate how much time you spend in prayer and Bible study. And think about that part of your brain and wonder, have my desires taken over and distracted me from God's voice? Thomas Fuller said, if your desires are endless, your cares and fears will be so too. Number two. The second warning sign is when me, myself, and I are the focus of my stuff. When me, myself, and I. Listen, Jesus knew that that the, the strongest and most sensitive nerve in the body ran from the wallet to the heart. And you better not touch it. You better not play with it. You better not get around it. Because, man, I tell you what, we, you start messing with that. But yet Jesus, out of 36 parables that he taught, 16 of them, nearly half of them, dealt with money and possessions and stewardship. So Jesus had a ton to say about this because he knew what Jesus was up against was not up against the big bad devil and the red pitchfork. He really, really wasn't even up against the Pharisees. Nobody liked them. What he was really fighting against was devotion to stuff. And what distracts us and what pulls us off is me, myself, and I, and how me, myself, and I can serve me, myself, and I. I look at this passage. You can't get away from it. You can't miss it. I hopefully you saw it. I want you to circle. If you have a hard copy of the scriptures, I want you to circle this every time you see the first person pronoun out there. Now, just notice the times he refers to himself. He thought to himself, what shall I do 
for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I, I do this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store for all my grains and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods. <laughs> you see the problem here? He has a, he has a I problem. He has a me problem. He has a myself problem. And he thinks the world is revolving around him. And it's all about him. And what we need to do, if we're going to see a shift, is we need to move our pronouns from self, from I, me, my, to more third person and more second person, him and them. How, how can I take what God has blessed me with and be a blessing to him and to them. And it's not just me, myself, and I. But this guy doesn't get it. He doesn't see it. We're living in this day, in this, in this time, in this season of greed. It's, it's contagious. It's nauseous even. In, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, it says, greed, which is idolatry. He defines it. Greed is idolatry. So if we ever had a problem with it today, let's talk about idolatry. Let's talk about greed. They're the same. When we can't ever seem to have enough and get enough and attain enough, what are we, how are we supposed to handle this? What's, our, what's the, the biblical response to this? He tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, flee from idolatry. Flee from it. Get away from it. Run from it. Get out, get out away from it as fast as you can. Flee from idolatry. Now here, now just take three verses here. And the next one, look at it. Peter. What did Peter say? They have hearts trained in greed. We have in our culture an idolatry problem. And the idolatry is called greed. And it's not just something that you just kind of pick up because you picked it up along the way. It is something that we are well versed in. We're trained in. How are we going to deal with that? How are we going to move away from that? How are we going to get away from, from me, myself, and I to, I, uh, to, to me, myself, and I to, 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 to being God, others, and self? That's the antidote to this, is that we got to move away from being about self. Here's a life principle for you. Give first, live second. Give first, live second, because we are trained, we're professionals at being greedy. What we've got to do is we've got to flee away from that and we've got to move away from that and we've got to change the course and we've got to live on a, on a different paradigm where we're going to give and then we will live and not live and then what's left over we'll find a little bit to give. Hey, this time of year we find a lot of generosity. You find a lot of people who say, yeah, I want to help a family in need at Christmas time and we help out a family in need at Christmas time. That's good. But who's going to help them out their electric bill and their, and their gas bill in January and February when we still have on our Christmas booties and they're without shoes, who's going to help them then? And, and what about when their kids outgrow their clothes? Or, you know, again, we, we, we have this kind of this overdose of, on generosity at one time of the year, but what about the rest of the year? But see, when we're, we're, we're greedy and we see their greediness by, 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 by being a little generous, when, when really it ought to be flipped around and we ought to think, okay, how, how can I bless God and how can I help others? And then if there's anything left over, then, then I'll, I'll, I'll take some for myself. But we don't operate that way. We, we just don't operate under that paradigm. Honor the Lord with the, the wealth, with your wealth and the first fruits, not the last, not the leftovers, the first fruits of all your produce. 
this Christmas, we, we do a Christmas offering every, every Christmas year, and I challenge you to do something this year. For as much as you will spend on the most loved person in your, in your family, whether it be $100, $200, $300, or whatever, you will carve off and you will give it to an unknown. That same amount. Now, you can go ahead and give them your, your family member that, that, that amount of money it's, or, or a gift. That's, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with exchanging gifts here. But when we put others, when we put God first, we'll find it in us to bless those who need to be blessed, who don't have who are less fortunate. We're going to do something at Christmas time when, when we're going to take up a Christmas offering. At one night, we do this one night a year, and it happens on Christmas Eve. This year, we're going to give a third of that to Mosaic, which is a local ministry right here in our church where we help foster an adoption. We help with children that are in foster need and adoptions, and we just bless the families that, that want to adopt. I met, I met a 55-year-old lady after the second service who heard this, what I'm about to tell you, and she was nearly in tears. She's raised four kids. She's 55 years old. She's a single mom, and she is ready to adopt. She's got a child picked out in, in China. It's a special needs child. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to provide a, a scholarship, a grant for families that are adopting, families that are fostering, so that they can do those kind of things. Bring in the children that don't have a, fa- that don't have a father or a mother. This past Friday night, we, we, we served more families than we've ever served through our foster parents' night out. In, in Arkansas alone, in fact, we have in our church 14 foster families that are actively in the foster care family ministry. We have 12 families that have adopted in our church. There are 50. There, there, there's 50 families right now part of training or that have been trained to be foster and adoptive parents. But there are 500 children around the state of Arkansas ready to be adopted. 450 children in foster care in northwest Arkansas alone, but there are only 180 homes. We had one family just two weeks ago that had two siblings brought to their house, and they had nothing. And all of a sudden, they have to go to Walmart. They have to go retool. They have to go resupply these families. What an awesome gift that we're going to be able to do after this Christmas, to say, here's $300. Here's $1,000. Because we're not about us. We're about God, others, then ourselves. Would you consider being a part of that? Start reprioritizing our giving and our living. Here's number three. Number three, warning sign that idol may be in your, in your home is that when your wallets are full but your soul is empty, this is really not about money. God doesn't need our money. He owns it all anyway. If he wants it from you, he'll take it. All right? Just, that's just, just the rule of life. But, but here's the reality. He wants your soul full. He's not as concerned about your wallet. In fact, that's why he says in verse 15, again, the thesis of it all, he says, take care that we be in guard against all covetousness for, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possession. If you're trying to figure out the net worth of your life and the only factor you factor in is your mutual funds, your 501k or whatever BCD it is out there, or your 1099, or, or your W-2 that will come in a few weeks, if that's really your network, you're missing it. That's not how we measure it. 
The message paraphrases it like this. Life is not defined by what you have, even when you have a lot. That is not the definition. In fact, he goes on to verse 21, and that kind of gives the cause and effect. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, just about getting money in the pockets, filling the wallets, and is not rich toward God. Let me say it again. God doesn't need your money. And if you never give a dime to this church, it means absolutely nothing to me. If you never give a dime to any church, it means nothing. What I want more than anything for everyone in this room today is not your wallets full, but that your soul be full. Because God forbid that you would live your life high, wide, and handsome, eat, drink, and being merry, and you lose your own soul. Matthew 16, verse 26, and what do we benefit if we gain the whole world but lose our own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Jesus said. I had a friend of mine in my very, well, second church that I pastored. His name was Jim. He was about 20 years older than me. And he had started a business, a small business in his garage that moved to a shed, that moved to a little warehouse, that moved to a storefront, and it just continued to grow. And Jim owned this business, became a multimillionaire from this business. He ended up becoming the second largest retailer of this business. I'll just leave it at that. And yet Jim got it. Jim died of esophageal cancer from years of smoking. And, um, but Jim taught me a lot. He got this. Jim was a multimillionaire, but he lived in a house that wouldn't be considered a middle-class home in Northwest Arkansas. I saw Jim give away more cars than he bought cars for himself. I saw Jim grant and give scholarships and fund people around the world. And I can remember on the last days of his life, what Jim was doing with his money, and his family's still all taken care of. Obviously, he had a lot of it. But he was drilling wells at $10,000 a pop in orphanages in Kenya, outside of Nairobi, in Uganda, and around the world. He saw what God had given him, not to, God gave me a dollar, the dollar's for me, how can I spend the dollar on me? God blessed him, and he saw his life to be a blessing to others. He lived what this man missed, and he was the most caring, sensitive man, and I absolutely broke my heart to stand over his casket at his funeral because I knew I'd not only lost a good friend, I'd lost a mentor, a man who had showed me how to live and how to let my money, the money that God entrusted to me, be a blessing to God, be a blessing to others before it was ever a blessing to me. This is a paradigm shift. It changes your life. I can stand before you today and you can say, Mike, I, I can tell you I have a problem with pornography. I've committed adultery. I've robbed a bank. I've, I've got a drug addiction. And you say, Mike, you're not qualified to stand up there and tell me how to live my life. But I can stand before you today wrecked in debt misusing money and you would just call me 
a good American citizen as long as I paid my taxes. The reality is, is idolatry runs and rules and is running our country and our faith. Will you put God first, others second, and yourself last? Would you bow your heads with me? You know, 2008, September, there was a God that died. I don't know if you know that. Just keep... The God was our economy. People lost homes. People lost jobs. Banks closed. There were runs on banks. People lost money, retirements. 401ks were half of what they were the day before. And there was a lot of trepidation and fear and loss of security and a lot of that doesn't, and I feel pain. I know I, I had family members that that went through, and some of y'all in this church went through that. And I, I get it. But our hope is not in that. Our hope is in Christ. And if you don't have Christ in your life, your wallet may be full, but your soul may be empty. Your soul is empty. Right here today where you are, would you just say to Christ, Christ, I want to get my life to following you. I'm not playing games anymore. I'm not going to have my little idol over here and have you on the side. I want you and you alone in my life. You are my security. You are my comfort. You are my hope. Father God, we bow before you now. I ask in this room that you do a great work, that we will not hold on any longer, but we will let go. We will not have attached to our heart any of the stuff, the trappings of this world, but Lord, we will will be set free today. We will surrender today. We will give over today. Lord, you may let us keep it. You may let us keep our homes, our jobs, our our cars, our, our, our dreams, our vacations, but Lord, it's not about that any longer. It's about you and serving you and living for you. And how can I take the things that you give me, Lord, and use them as a blessing to you and for you and to others, Lord, before I ever bless myself. Thank you for the gems in my life. Jim made a huge difference. Thank you for Jim. I pray that, Lord, we will all be gems in people's lives, modeling for what it means to put you first, others second, and ourself last. I pray this in Jesus' name.